what you're going through, other people are going through as well. So if you can see that as an opportunity to actually step up when other people won't, you have a lot to gain. It's sometimes it's a process that you have to go through. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Kraszowski, and welcome to episode 72 of That Remote Life Podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Now, today on the podcast, I'm joined by Itamar Marani, a former member of the Israeli Special Forces, the youngest air marshal in Israel's history, and if that wasn't enough, he's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt who now focuses on helping entrepreneurs overcome crisis and excel through mindset and leadership through his company, Marani Consulting. I really wanted to have Inamar on the podcast because I think COVID has really shown that as leaders and entrepreneurs, a lot of us just weren't ready to handle something like this. Uh, Many of us started our businesses during a time of growth and opportunity, and it's really the first time that we're facing a challenge like this, so it's never been more important to know how to deal with a crisis in a high-pressure situation. And so that's exactly what Inamar and I discussed on this podcast. We also got to talk about how to create a strong contingency plan for yourself and your business So if things go wrong, you know exactly what to do and how to react to that situation. Along with that, Inamar and I got to talk about his background and how he ended up becoming an entrepreneur after his uh, serving in the Special Forces and as a security guard for a Russian oligarch, which in my opinion is crazy and it's so fascinating. Uh, It's such a fascinating background. It's it's really not every day that you get to meet someone uh, who has worked and protected a Russian oligarch. Uh, and so we also got to talk a little bit about, you know, what sort of lessons did he learn, uh, you know, working for that Russian oligarch that he maybe has taken from that experience and has brought into his business. You guys, this was a really cool conversation and I'm so happy to have had Itamar on the podcast. I really believe that what Itamar and I discussed on this episode is not something that is talked about very often, but is really, really important Uh, because even though it's rare that things can go really wrong, when they do, it's important to know how to react. As always, you can find the full show notes to this interview over at thatremotelife.com forward slash episode 72. That's episode all spelled out followed by the number 72. And if you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It's the number one way to help support the show. Also, if you enjoy watching these interviews instead of just listening to them, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just search for my name, Mitko, M-I-T-K-O, Karshovsky, K-A-R-S-H-O-V-S-K-I, and you will find us. Hopefully, the more uh, videos that we release just by searching that remote life, you'll be able to find us, but right now, you can't. Well, all right, you guys, without further ado, let's dive into this awesome conversation with Itamar Marani. All right, well, Edemar, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing? I'm doing good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course, man. Well, I'm super excited to uh, chat with you. Um, one of the very first things that I like to talk about at the moment with everything going on is how things are at in Vietnam. And I know that we kind of touched on that before we hit record, but I think it is very interesting to hear uh, everything, like how different places are reacting and what the world looks like in other parts of the world. So uh, can you just kind of give us like, a quick overview of how things stand for you right now because you're in vietnam at the moment yeah so in vietnam things are 100 percent back to normal pre-covid times everything is open beaches are open public places are open like we said i trained jujitsu yesterday which is the most proximity you can get with somebody and that's open um, but yeah the only difference that i noticed was that back even in february here they're already checking for temperatures outside of big shops malls and so on before i was even aware of what covid was and I think they just were ahead of the curve. Are people like wearing masks at all um, or not? Not really. They, about two weeks ago, people stopped wearing masks religiously. But it was also very interesting because when COVID was going on and there was the lockdown here, it was three weeks where you shouldn't be really going anywhere, just get groceries and all that. People were wearing masks and you can tell they were very terrified of foreigners because they thought that 
the foreigners were the ones that were bringing it in here. So whenever sure. I would go somewhere, I would see kids covering their face and trying to, to veer away from me. But yeah. So when you're like, I'm trying to imagine like, are when you're like doing jujitsu, are is like like everything's normal? Like you're not like you're breathing in each other's faces and stuff. Yeah, everything's back to normal here. I'm. I wonder what sort of like long-lasting effects there will be to sort of like communication and stuff like that. Because like I think here it's still a little bit like somebody sneezes in the store and everybody's like kind of like freaks out a little bit, you know. So yeah. I, I I wonder how long that's gonna last. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I think the moment there is a vaccine, things will change. Up until then, people are just going to be a bit paranoid. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, man, uh, I'm super excited to have you on the show. Like I said, you have a super interesting background. Uh, you were in the Israeli Special Forces, uh, and now you have a business where you do consulting and helping kind of bring the lessons uh, from the Special Forces into the business world. And correct me if I got any of that wrong, but I'm really curious to learn about why you went into the special forces in the first place. Was it something that like, like I was telling you before we hit record in Bulgaria, for example, um, up until I think like the nineties, uh, the moment you turned 18, you went into the military for two years, uh, and then you got like, you know, like released and you could go back to like a normal life. Is it something similar like that in Israel or is it like completely up to your choice? No, it, it is mandatory. It's three years for males and two years for females. It's a mandatory thing when you're 18. So it's for women as well. Wow. Yes, women have to serve two years as well. Everyone has to contribute in their way. And so did you, like, did you plan on going into like, the military and like, staying in it uh, from before that? Or was it like your experience during those three mandatory years that kind of influenced you to stay on for longer? Um, so I didn't stay in it for longer. I'll put it this way. So also just to elaborate, I was in the special forces for three years and then I went into our version of the FBI, our Shin Bet. And I, and I was an operator there and I served in several countries abroad in certain capacities. Um, the reason I went into the special forces was because my last name is Marani and that's what Maranis do. My father was a major in the special forces, my cousins, my grandfather fought in the war of independence in 48. It just, kind of what's expected of you in a way and what you want to live up to and also there was purpose there like i knew my family's history i knew what happened to my great-grandparents in the holocaust how the majority of the family got decimated there and it was what i wanted to, like if i was going to get drafted anyway at 18 might as well go all in and do it the right way yeah you might as well be an extra badass right <laughs> might as well give it your all like if you're going to be there for three years might as well make all you can out of it both for yourself and for whatever you're trying to contribute to. So then was the, like the next step of going to like your FBI, um, was that something that you had decided to do before or was it something that like during your experience with the special forces you thought would be a good next step? It was during the special forces. So during my experience with the special forces, I got injured pretty badly with my shoulder and I, for a while I had to sit out and I didn't like that. And I wanted to do a little bit more. So I had two options. The first option was to go to officer school, which the unit wanted to send me. And the second option was to get released. And I was already heading towards officer school. Literally a day before I was supposed to get sent, me and another guy that was supposed to head out realized that there were some changes in the unit with the new unit commander that we didn't agree with. So we both just decided, you know, this isn't for me. And I still felt like I wanted to do more. And when I looked at I want to do more, this could be a very viable option to go forward with this. It seemed like a very interesting thing because you get to travel around the world a lot. You get to be in different places. And it's also very, um, it was a very hard and prestigious sector to get into. Out of all the FBI, the one I was into, the air marshal program in the beginning, it's the most challenging sector to get into as far as the selection and the process that goes around that. So I thought it was a great goal. Mm. I'm curious also because, I mean, your English is like, like perfect. <laughs> and I don't know that much about Israel and and sort of like the like are you taught English like growing up or was it something that you had to learn like later on in life? Yeah, no. So most Israelis talk with an accent and it sounds very different, right? So mm -hmm. the reason that I speak like this is because I lived in the, the U.S. as a kid for a little bit. So oh, okay. at age four, we lived for a year in Boston when my father was doing his studies there, and then from seven to thirteen, we lived in Washington D.C. And both my parents were diplomats at the Israeli embassy in Washington D.C. So. 
during that time, I picked up the American accent. Gotcha. Throws so you're sort off, of, I know. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Cause I was like, wow. I mean, like your English is like perfect. So I didn't know if it was like an FBI training thing or like an <laughs> like, infiltrate us things like more easily, but, um, so I'm curious as to at what point did you decide to sort of make the jump into, cause like, you know, like I mentioned, like you now, you know, have your own business and you work with a lot of, uh, like location dependent business owners as well. And so why did you decide to go into entrepreneurship? And also, was that something that you always like, you know, in the entrepreneurship circles, we talk about as a disease. It's something that you don't choose. It kind of is just there, whether you like it or not. Was it the yeah. case for you? And like, it was it something that you felt all the way through and then like, you just have to go and do it? Or was it more of like a conscious, logical decision? I think it was probably a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. I went into entrepreneurship, not directly after the military or the, or the government. After the government, I decided to go and try and compete in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for a while. So I lived in Brazil, spent my time there, competed, all that jazz. And after that, I actually went back into the private sector. I was the chief of security for one of the Russian oligarchs for a little bit. He did a retirement world tour. And my job was to make sure that his family and all his assets are safe. And did you say a Russian oligarch? I did. Okay. okay. Continue, but this is something we have got to touch <laughs> on later. Yeah. So after a while, though, working with him, I think I did three, almost three years in total. I just said, this is enough. I am at a great salary. The conditions were theoretically great, but what ended up was it was a rotational job. So I would do a month at, on the job, and then I'd do a month on paid leave, where I get a plane ticket, I get to go wherever I want in the world, and I get a month of paid leave. And at first, it's really cool, because you get to travel a lot, you're making great money, and you get to have six months off a year. But what I ended up seeing was that all the older people that were doing that were very miserable, because they couldn't sustain a happy family life. Like that, if you're six months of the, of the year away, you can't have a good relationship with your wife, your kids, whatever it may be. And that was kind of the point where I said enough. Enough's enough, and I need to do something for myself. And before I got into consulting, I read the four-hour work week like everybody else, and I was like, oh, this, there's something interesting here. Maybe I can do something. And I tried to open up a Facebook ad agency. And open up a Facebook ad agency, ran that for a year, and then... It, I was finding mediocre success there. It wasn't great. So I said, okay, I want to get better at this. I want to get this to an elite level. What do I do? All right, let me go find some people that can really, really help me, people who are above my level. And let me try to convince them to help me by giving them something valuable and then getting that reciprocity. So at DCBKK last year, I decided to give a talk about my lessons in the special forces. And the whole point of that was to hopefully have some really high level people in the room and say, yo, Edomar, you're a really great guy. We can see you're on your beginning of your way. So we want to help you a little bit. What turned out to be is that after that talk, a bunch of people came to me and they're like, why are you doing that? That's not a good idea. You have this skill set. Like we will pay you money to coach us and to help our companies. I was like, you know what? That, that might be a better idea. <laughs> so that's kind of how it came about full cycle. But it's, it's something that I've always, I've always felt comfortable speaking in a public capacity or leading people, whether it was through sports and youth, the military, the government, whatever it may be. So it is, it was a pretty natural fit once that came about. I think that's really funny that you had this like experience of like building an ad agency and like doing something that's completely different from what you've been paid to do before, because it's something that I talk with a lot of people who are just getting started, which is like, you know, they, they've worked for a company for like five years doing one thing and then they want to go and do something completely opposite. And I'm like, no, if you, if you really want to become location independent, the quickest way to do it is like, do what you're already being paid to do. Uh, and then just like, you know, tweak it so that you can do it in a location dependent way or, or build a business out of it. It's just so common to kind of like see that. And I did the same thing myself. I tried to build like a tech agency, like, you know, I did, uh, but I'm very curious about, I'm not going to ask you any specifics about the Russian oligarch or who he was or anything like that, but I am curious, were there any lessons that you learned being so close to him or her um, that you now, like that you feel like now help you in business? In business? No. In life? Yes. Okay. I learned very, very clearly that money does not buy you happiness. Mm. That, it was such a 
so my trajectory, like I said, I went from basically competing in jujitsu to then working for him. And I went from making very, very, very little money with, you know, some, some sponsorships and all that to all of a sudden making a six figure salary and seeing how miserable he was and how his family were so unhappy. There was just so much tension there. There was no real love. And there always just, there was so much worry about who, who has more between him and the other billionaires. There was never any sense of calm and ease that it really taught me that for myself, not having money is everything, but also having it isn't. So it's like mm-hmm. money isn't everything, but not having it is. So it really, it really propelled me to understand what is that tipping point of how much money do you need to make in order to be happy? And it was great that at 27, I was able to see that and to see, wow, firsthand, okay, this guy has billions of dollars, billions of dollars. He has a mega yacht that we're traveling around that's worth half a billion dollars. He has literally everything you could ever want, but he's miserable. He's miserable. And it was such a telling lesson, but okay, this isn't the only thing. I recognize that not having money and just doing what you're passionate about, but not being able to sustain yourself and your family, that's not a way. Also, this isn't the way. There needs to be some point in the middle there where you have enough to sustain what you need, but you're not caught up in it. It's not your primary and sole focus in life. You know, I think that there's a lot of people that um, are kind of putting that information out there. You know, like if you go and like you read books or you watch YouTube videos from a lot of people who are very successful, they'll tell you, you know, money doesn't make you happy. Um, and it's really powerful that you had that experience personally, cause it probably like reaffirmed it for you. But I think logically a lot of people understand that the issue is that they don't really put it into operation, right? They don't like really like do anything with that. So what did you do to put that sort of understanding into action, um, now in both the way that you live, uh, on a day-to-day basis and in the way that you operate your business? Okay. So. I think something that needs to be said is that what I also saw there is that it, it's really your happiness and money are not congruent, but the way you make your money, that's a big cha- That's a big difference maker. So if you're making it in a way where it wasn't the most, let's say honest and giving back to the world kind of manner, that's one thing. Now the Russian crew that I saw a lot of times, they were not very happy. They were always paranoid. They were always very uptight. However, when I see the American billionaires or multimillionaires that you could tell had something that was a passion project of theirs, that they grew really big, that just happened to make a lot of money, that was very different. When Mm. money was just a byproduct, it wasn't the only goal, very different in how they look, how their families looked and all that jazz. What for me was kind of the tipping point, I educated myself on this. I read up a lot on it. One of the books that I found most impactful was Stumbling on Happiness where he literally quantified it from a very uh, analytical place. How much money do you need to be happy? What kind of experiences make us happy? And he was able to grade it on a score of one to 10. And what's the tipping point? That beyond that, it's just incremental gains. And I think he said the tipping point is about 80 grand US a year, if you're living in the US. Um, and I think it's true beyond that, it's just niceties. You get used, business class is really cool to fly the first couple of times. And then if you ever have to fly coach, you're really agitated. You get used to business <laughs> class. If you have to fly coach, you're super agitated. A lot of these things, they're not, they don't really bring true happiness. A lot of things that money can buy. Now, having that security that you can provide for you and your family, that brings a lot of happiness, a lot of calm. But once you go past that point of calm and no stress, they're just niceties and they wear off really quickly. So then does that kind of like affect what's, what opportunities you go after, uh, kind of like, you know, like looking at things through that scope? Yeah. Um, so let's put it this way. I have enough money now to live in a very comfortable manner and pursue what I want. It doesn't mean that I don't extremely aggressively pursue the route that I want in life. It just means that I don't have to make the kind of sacrifice. I don't have to run an ads agency anymore. I don't want to do that. I have enough money for my consulting that I can do something that I'm really passionate about that I enjoy and I don't have to have an agency that kills it. Don't need it. I'd rather use my energy to build a really great, um, how do you call this? A, a great thought leadership in a certain field, really help people understand their mindset and how they can grow. I'd rather use my energy in there, invest in that. So it does, it affects it a lot. I know that you said that you read the four hour work week and obviously that's the Bible for people like you and I, and you know, something that, you know, launches a lot of uh, sort of journeys that you and I have been on. Was that the reason why you decided to 
you know, run a business in a location-independent way? Or like, was there something else? Did like, like, where did the seedling for that sort of uh, business enterprise come from? I think it was probably the seed that when I read that, I thought to myself, "Oh wow, that this is a possibility. This is a real thing. There's been proof of concept." Tim showed proof of concept that this is a viable, a viable route. And I think also at a certain point, I, uh, I got caught into Russell Brunson's funnel and I was told that I'm one funnel away and I kind of believe it, you know, and I checked that out. But I definitely think the four hour week was a seedling. It showed that there's proof of concept. This is a realistic thing. It's plausible. So why Vietnam? Why, why was that the place that you kind of, I know that you've been there for a while now. Uh, you know, we, we've interacted a few times. You've been there the whole time uh, since we've been interacting. So why did you choose to stay in Vietnam? Okay, so I think just context, we've only been in Vietnam since the end of January. Oh, okay. When I was working, when I was working for the Oligarch, our main hub was in Bangkok. My wife had been living there since 2010 and working there and it was our main hub. So we would spend about three months out of the year there and the rest I'd be there on the ship or we'd be traveling to somewhere else. It's going on nice month long vacations. And after this DCBKK, we just decided, you know what? We're gonna have a year of travels. This was before COVID hit obviously. And we went and we spent some time in Chiang Mai and then we were supposed to come here at the end of February until the end, until the end of March. And she was leading a teacher training here, a yoga a prenatal teacher training here. So we said, this is a beautiful place. It's on the beach. We like it here. We've already been here on vacation. Let's just spend two months out of the year here. It's not bad. And when COVID hit, that changed everything. I was supposed to be in Austin during uh, April. Then I was supposed to do actually a cruise and speak on the transatlantic cruise, go to Europe for it. And Was it, it Nomad Cruise? Everything. It was, yeah. I was supposed to be one of the speakers there. So that changed everything. I was supposed to be in Austin as well, I'm guessing, for DC Austin you were going to be there? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So that everything has changed. I'm curious as um, some, I'm getting married in a couple of months here. Uh, and so Congrats. I'm curious. Thank you. I'm curious. What's it like to, you know, from your experience, like, what is it like, what are the benefits, you know, to like, maybe the struggles of, you know, being a digital nomad and entrepreneur and being married? Is your wife also working in digital entrepreneurship? Is she location independent? Or does she have a regular, let's call it job? Mm -hmm. uh, for me, yeah, she's also yeah. Uh, location independent. Okay, so I think that makes life a bit easier. Um, I think the biggest challenge is just learning to support each other. That work, the thing with work and especially with all the location independent stuff, it's usually more analytical because you're doing either ads or SaaS or whatever it may be, is that it's really easy to quantify analytics and feel like we have a win, we did something correct. So when you're traveling around, bouncing around, and you're already short on energy because you just moved to a new place, new surrounding, and you have two things you can either focus on right now, either your business, which is very, oh, I need to do this and this, or your relationship, where uh, it'll be all right. It's easy to neglect that. But I think if you make a conscious effort to constantly say every day when you write in your morning journal or whatever it may be, that one of my primary focuses in life is to be a great husband, it gives you that boost to overcome our analytical brain that we can see, oh, my business needs this right now. So if I do that, it's a great success. Because we don't see that in our relationship. We don't get that kind of feedback. Mm. So I think the biggest challenge is not falling into that trap. Yeah, I think like for us, because we've been traveling together actually for four years, you know, like we both kind of became location dependent together and have been like, I mean, I've never been location dependent without her. So I guess I wouldn't even know what that experience would be like, but like for us and like, especially now, like working together in an apartment where like, I can't go to a co-working space or something like that. It has become so much more important of like communication and like being very verbally of like, what are our triggers? Like we've become very like, they're like the little things, you know what I mean? Like there's like those little yeah. things that are not a big deal that just end up blowing <laughs> up. into like something that they shouldn't be. So yeah. uh, that's become super important. I encourage anybody who's, cause I'm, you know, I know we're going to hear statistics of a bunch of divorces and breakups, you know, with like COVID and everything like that. So I think that's something that's been super important for us, but I'm curious because you're, the second person with a military background who's been on the podcast, um, you know, in the last month or two, 
Um, and I asked this to the, to Tom Burton. He was on, he was in the air force, uh, in the U S before he started his business. But I'm curious about your military experience. Do you feel that that was a positive going into your entrepreneurship journey or a negative? And, and the reason why I asked that is that the way that I view entrepreneurship, and I think a lot of people do as well, is kind of like an, an entrepreneurship, not business people, uh, is that there are people who are rule breakers, right? They kind of look at like this, the, 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 you know, the way that things are done. They're like, I don't think it should be done this way. I'm going to do it a complete opposite way, which is clearly not the military way. So like, what do you think about that? Was that something that you would, did you find that experience helpful or, or not? So, so again, just to give it context, when people say the military from the outside, it's one big thing, but when you look at it from the inside, it's very different. So in the special forces, the, the specific unit I was in, and also in the government leader, I was always brought up to be an officer. Pretty much from day one, it was kind of, you get certain testing scores and they look at you to lead certain things. I, mm. At times I didn't live up to that, but that's what I was looked at. So they gave me that kind of leeway. It was about, I had to be a lot of times, I was very creative. I wasn't just following orders. It was my way. How do we attack this hill? How do we conquer this mountain? And it was up to me to devise a strategy. So mm. I think it, did, it didn't stunt me in that way that I just became someone who follows orders. But the greatest benefit it gave me was dealing with the fog. The whole like, advanced unit boot camp is from, from months four to six of special forces training, and it's in 20 month uh, training period. You're in advanced unit boot camp. And it's just basically hell week for two months. You don't know how long you're gonna sleep for, you don't know if you're gonna sleep, when you're gonna eat, what you're gonna do next, and it's exhausting. And the most exhausting thing is at first that you don't know what's going on. And you keep trying to figure it out. Everybody's like, oh, what's next? What's next? Are we going to sleep tonight? How long are we going to sleep? Are they going to wake us up in the middle of the night? And at a certain point, I, th- I don't know if you learn it or it just happens because you're too exhausted to keep thinking about it. You just let it go. And you just go with it. And you just, it trains you for the fog of war. But what it really prepared me for was the fog of entrepreneurship. I think it's been a tremendous benefit to me. Because I don't have to have, I see so many entrepreneurs saying, well, I don't know if it's going to work, so I'm not going to try it. And that fear of what if it doesn't happen? Well, I don't know exactly what the risk reward ratio is. It's like, I, am, I have no problem moving forward in uncertainty. When COVID, for example, happened and it smashed all my, all my ideas that I wanted to speak in Austin, that I was going to do Nomad Cruise, that I was going to have speaking. I already had things also lined up in Europe. It smashed everything. I was like, okay, cool. What's next? It didn't take me that long to recover from it. It took me a day to be like, oh, no, that kind of sucked because I put a lot of effort into this. All right, what's next? And I think that ability to deal with uncertainty that I gained from the military, that was tremendously beneficial. I think that's so, so interesting because to me, that's why entrepreneurship is such a, a, an important skill. Um, like I think that people who truly learn the skill of entrepreneurship uh, and get practice in their, their belt are like very good at exactly what you explained is that like, it's problem solving, right? And it's like, you don't know what problem is going to arise, but you need to know that you can like identify it, come up with a theory and like a hypothesis of how to solve it. And then like actually go out there and like present that solution to like possible customers. And it's just, it's, it's funny that you describe your, you know, your, your special forces service in, in helping you with that, because to me, I would be like, no, those are like two completely different things. Right. But it's very interesting that you, that, you know, you kind of had that experience as well. Yeah. I I love Um, that you said that because if I may, the principle behind both, both of those two things is mental resiliency. It's all that is. It's not the belief that things will work out. It's the belief that I have the ability to thrive and make things happen, regardless of the situation. In entrepreneurship, it's things happen, things go fast, whatever it may be. I'm going to, like you said, logically figure it out, adapt, and win. In the military, it's the same thing. Whatever they throw at me, things will change. I can figure it out. I am not going to collapse. And having that internal belief, that's a skill. That resiliency did not say, okay, just because things change, things have gone south, I'm now going to collapse because I don't have my comfort area, system, whatever it may be. I think that's especially important um, today and as we move like forward into the future because I think um, with artificial intelligence and a lot of the things that are coming up, 
we're going to constantly have to be like rethinking what we're doing and like relearning. And this whole like 40 year career thing is not going to be around anymore. Right. Like, um, I read this article that basically said that in the future, people are going to have more like, like three or four careers in their working life because they're going to start one career. And then that job is going to get like, you know, nixed by automation. Then you're going to have to relearn it. Um, and I think that that's why that sort of building that muscle of, okay, shit hit the fan. The, what I was doing before doesn't work now. How do I, you know, rethink this problem? How do I tackle it? Um, is, is really important. I do want to ask you about, you got trained to not, you know, get kind of like, like brought down. Um, but what happens if you do like, what happens if, for example, I'll give you, I'll give you a personal example. Um, I have always grown up believing that I could figure anything out, that no matter what the problem was, it doesn't matter because I can solve it. Um, and what ended up happening was that I was working with a friend in a digital agency and things started falling and collapsing. And no matter what I did, uh, I couldn't fix it. I couldn't solve it. And for the first time, it was almost like that, like that scratch in, in the armor. Right. And I was like, Whoa, I couldn't figure this out. <laughs> Uh, that's a problem. And I went into kind of like a depression for a month or two. How do you deal with that when that's happening? Because I think that that might be happening to a lot of, you know, people right now who, you know, COVID came out of nowhere. It was to no fault of their own. Um, and they're now down in that place where they couldn't figure it out. So how, what do you do to build yourself back up from that? Okay. So I'll break this into a couple of things. First off, I think it's so great that you said that a lot of people are going through this right now. And that's something that really needs to be looked at. That especially during COVID right now, your situation, you're not the only one going through hardships. And you're not the only one whose mind is faltering. So if you can recognize that, it's a big thing. Because if, let's say a year ago, I would tell you, listen, the economic pie of the world, just for number's sake, is going to get cut by, let's say, 20%. However, 50% of the people are, are going to lose their mental fortitude and they're gonna start acting in a very chaotic and frantic manner. You're like, oh, well, I can win that. If there's, there's less, less competition, substantially less, then maybe there's an opportunity here for me. And you would look at it from that perspective. And I think that's a big thing. First off, recognizing that you're special, but you're not special. What you're going through, other people are going through as well. So if you can see that as an opportunity to actually step up when other people won't, you have a lot to gain here. Now, as far as the depression part, um, first off, and thanks for sharing that, it's sometimes it's a process that you have to go through. When I was in the special forces, so I served in two special forces units, not by choice. The first one I started out was in our version of Delta. And at a certain point, I got kicked out because I wasn't mentally tough enough. I quit at a certain point. Like, I didn't know I was quitting, really, but I quit on myself. And they were like, self-secession, dude. You let your mind secede to your body. You're out. And I was, there was a lot of shame there. And I also faced a certain level of depression because you're 18. This was supposed to be my status symbol that EMR does elite stuff. And all of a sudden I'm out. And you kind of have to see it as an opportunity to where do I go from here? How do I want to go next time? Like that moment, I still look at it in regret, but it's also a motivator. And when you say things didn't work out for you, you had a chink in your armor. When you look at it back now, how motivating is it to say that you went through that, but now you're stronger for it? Yeah, it's, it's very motivating. And it's also like taking the time to like look at the experience and understand like, why did it happen? Like, was it something that like I had like control over? Like, were there like multiple? And I also think that you're right about like, like going through it, like, like knowing the feelings that I was having before that and being able to like catch them happening before they escalate to that has been like that in itself is like a huge, like, like yeah. lesson. Yeah. That's beautiful. If you can set a, if you find the triggers, so when this happens, that means I'm starting to head downhill. Then when you can catch that ahead of time, you've already be evolved into a better version of yourself. And that's the beauty of it. It's there's, I don't remember exactly how you said it earlier, but, you're kind of saying when you hit a tough situation or what do you do? Is it, can you just, you deal through it? Okay. This is supposed to happen. Like, honestly, when I deal with a tough situation, I say, awesome. You know why? Because there's short-term and long-term. 
Short term, this sucks. I have to deal with it. So if I think about it that way, bad news. However, if I think in the long term, I'm the kind of person I want to evolve into in my later life so I can look back with pride at what I do, this is a phenomenal opportunity. I'm just going through a hardship right now. Let me see how I can handle it. Let me see if I can rise above it and not fall to these emotions, not get stressed, not take it out on other people, whatever it may be. So when you look at it from the long-term perspective, when you're going through something really hard right now, but you say, how will I look back at this in 10 years from now? You can really energize. You can say, I'm either going to look back at it with regret or I'm going to level up and look back at it with pride. And I think that's a big thing to make these decisions from a, a kind of vision of how to look back at things. Hmm. You know, along kind of, this is a, a nice segue into another question that I had for you. Um, like we've mentioned, we're both in, in a group called the DC dynamite circle. Yeah. Um, and we interacted over a thread a few months back, uh, discussing finding your why. And this is something mm -hmm. that like, you know, I read, um, start with why by Simon Sinek and really made me think about it and kind of like figure that out. And it's something that I was like, Oh man, you know, these people have these awesome whys, like they're saving the world and curing a million people of diseases and whatever. And I just couldn't figure it out. And it was kind of like this thing that was in the back of my head constantly. And I had decided to, you know what, I'm going to shelve this. I'm not going to focus on it so much. I'm going to move in the direction of like, you know what I'm interested in and I'm not going to worry about it too much. And I posted that in this thread and you came back and answered and you said, if I told you that you have a critical error in your business, would you just shelve it and not do anything about it? And I was like, okay, this is interesting. Um, why is not having a why and kind of like, I think this touches on what we were talking about before this, but why is not identifying your why such a critical error in your business? And also, you know, those tie in with your life and like with your journey. Yeah. So in that post, it was, I also mentioned that if you don't have a why, you can have a where at least. Where is, where do you want to arrive at? What kind of life do you want to build for yourself? What kind of business do you want to live for yourself? Where do you wish to arrive at in 20 years down the road? Now, the thing is, finding your why is pretty unique. Not everybody can find it. Not everybody also works that way. Some people's heads work in different ways. Mm. So I think finding where you want to get to is a great way to understand why you should do certain things, which actions will lead you to What am I doing? I'm doing this. Why? Oh, because that's where I want to get to. That's how I want my life to look like. And the, the reason I think this is so important to understand either your why or your where is because you don't want to be doing things very well that take you in the wrong direction. Mm. I looked at the oligarch, for example. He did the game of making money. He did that tremendously well. But at 60, he's miserable. He was literally one of the most miserable people I've ever met in my life. Honestly, it was one of, he's probably the most stressed and miserable person I've ever met in my life, bar none. And that's why I think it's so important. It's for two reasons. One, that it's such a tragedy if at the end of your life, you didn't actually arrive where you want to because you didn't give it the thought ahead of time. And two, it's really hard to overcome challenging things when you don't have a clear reason as to why you want to do that. Like they ask, why are people in the military so disciplined? It's because you'll get shot if you're not. It's a very clear why. It's a very strong and compelling reason to do something. Right. And same thing in life. In entrepreneurship, in business, in relationships, whatever it may be, we face these challenges. And the reason that people can usually say, okay, I have an obstacle here. And instead of succumbing to it and just giving up and quitting, I'm going to actually challenge, I'm going to tackle it and I'm going to overcome it and I'm going to win is because there's a reason, a compelling enough reason for them to want to do it. And that's usually their why or their where. They say, if this is where I want to get to in life, this is a necessary obstacle. And it's not just an obstacle. It's an opportunity to get me there, to help me evolve into this person who I want to become. And I think that's really why it's so important. It's such a tragedy when you see people who are 50 years old, 60 years old, and they've lived a the life they're not happy for because they didn't take the time to say, where do I want to arrive at? And then let me distill my actions from there, reverse engineer what's necessary to happen in order to get there. Mm. You know, I had a conversation with a friend recently where um, this idea popped into my head that I think people who are location dependent or digital nomads like, like ourselves uh, hit their midlife crisis like early, or at least the like, uh, <laughs> you know, when like people hit their midlife crisis, like, oh, what yeah. is like the point of my life? And like, you know, what are my interests, like my passions? Like, I feel like 
we almost hit that earlier because we're yeah. driven to almost like answer those. Like, what do you think about that? It was like this thing that I threw out that I just kind of like came off the top of my head and I, I wasn't sure if it, if, if it backed up or it held up, but what do you think about that? Well, I think we're better. People who are location independent are a leg up on climbing Maslow's hierarchy of needs mm. because they have a career that's, that funds themselves and they can also start adventuring a little bit. They do the, let's call it more surface level things of, going out, partying across the world, meeting new people, creating a lot of weak connections by getting a lot of interesting things. And they just get more quicker in life. Mm -hmm. And I think they reached that, that stage earlier because again, they're just going through higher volume of reps. And then there's a point where a lot of them are like, okay, but what's next? Where, why am I still feeling like something here isn't clicking? Like I'm not very happy. I have everything, so to speak. I have enough money. I can travel, but something here is lacking. Hmm. Yeah, that makes that. I mean, that's me to a cue. You know, I traveled for two years, you know, like, and that was like everything. And then I was like, okay, like, why does it still not feel like I've kind of checked all the boxes, you know? So there's, it, you know, that, that it's a good way to put it as like Maslow higher, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is like you almost check the earlier things quicker even because I'm guessing people check those off later on in life because they finally kind of gain the finances to cover all of those and to live the life they want in order to ask the bigger questions. And by, you know, not living in the U.S. and living in Vietnam or a place like that, you're almost able to check those off earlier and ask those bigger questions. Yeah. Um, so that's very interesting. Now, obviously... Can I, can I ask you a question? Absolutely. So what was your takeaway? Do you have a certain why or where you want to arrive at in life? I have a where I want to live, okay. uh, arrive at life. I'm definitely, I want to be in a position of like freedom to be able to kind of spend my time and energy on projects that pique my curiosity and, and drive my interest. Um, but for me in the last year, so to say, the bigger revelation has actually been who I want to serve. And that actually came from... Um, I had a conversation with Damian Thompson, who I, you might know from the DC as well. Uh, and I've probably mentioned this on the podcast now a million times, but he, he told me this thing about um, how most people focus on what product or service they want to they sell, but they don't focus on who they want to serve. And then that's the much more important question to answer because the product and the service can change as long as like the audience and the who stays the same that will always change as long as like you're, you're, you found your who. And to me, that was like, I've almost like battled these multiple who's. And then when I got to like, like stop and ask myself, like, who are the people I want to hang out with? Like, who are the people who I enjoy getting beers with? Like the, the answer was very clear. And then now it's just like, okay, what are the products and services for those people? Uh, so for me, that quieted that why question, if that makes sense. Okay. It does. I think something interesting to ask is then, if you really want that and to be able to hang out with these people and also have the freedom to pursue whatever projects you want, the question is who must you become in order to have that? Mm. Because if you don't, if we don't have something now, that means we're not capable of it. It's simple as that. We must evolve into what we want. And I think that could be your where in a way mm. to say, this is the person I, I want to evolve into because once I get that person to that level, then I can have whatever I want. And it makes, making decisions very easy. So if somebody is, you know, looking at this and, and kind of trying to decide, like, you know, they kind of know the sort of person they want to become, how do you go about doing that? So you, you, once you know the kind of person you want to become, this is where you have to be honest with yourself. Are your daily actions on standard for becoming that person or not? It's very simple. The clearer you are about this kind of person say, is what I'm doing right now leading to this? Is it how this person would behave or not? It's like, I'm not capable of it. I need to evolve still. So a lot of the decisions that I make, I don't make based on how I feel. I, I make based on how this greater version of Edomar would behave. Not how would I feel if, oh, this is scary. I don't know what to do here. This might flop, whatever it may be. But if I was my own hero, so to speak, what would I do here? Is this above standard to this behavior or is it below standard? Hmm. So, and, and I'm guessing this kind of touches um, 
to like a forming habits that your 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 dream self would kind of like be be doing right and even in the beginning it might be difficult for you to like bring those habits and to kind of like make them into a habit but eventually your dream self would have that what are like what are the things that you're aspiring to that the you know Itamar dream self has and what are those habits that you're building in and what are some of those I don't like the idea of hacks, but I think people struggle a lot with building habits. Um, do you have any tips to kind of making that stick? So the thing that I found that works the most for me is that every day in the morning, I write several things of how I would like to behave, how I would like to conduct myself. So let's put it this way. Theoretically, I could wake up and I didn't sleep well. I'm not in a great mood, the dog is barking, whatever it may be. And I have a lot of my plate. However, if every day when I write the things that I want to focus on, the kind of person I want to become, that I'm the kind of person who does uncomfortable things. I am a person who supports his wife. I am a person who tries to only focus on what's ahead of him right now, but also thinks about the big picture. All these things, they put me into the correct perspective. And then my day, I don't go about acting and doing things in how I feel right now, but in accordance to what I aspire to be. And that's a big thing. And I literally have in there, it sounds very tacky to a lot of people, but I have written in there every day, I act like I'm my own hero. It's like I try to not do what's comfortable, I try to do what a hero version of me would do. And when I write that every day, at the beginning of every day, it sets me on a really good trajectory. Hmm. I like that. I know that uh, we've been chatting for a while now um, and I want to be respectful of your time, but I, I really want to touch on a topic that's been in my head quite a bit recently with everything that's kind of going on in the U S and in uh, around a lot of other places in the world coming from an Eastern European background. And I don't need to tell you, you know, you know, come, you know, being Israeli is that I think unlike most Americans, I'm not, um, I think a lot of Americans have this sense that nothing can go wrong in the U.S., that like no crazy thing, no bad event can happen. And that's almost something that I'm like, I don't know about that, guys. You know, like something could go wrong. Like it's, you know, the, the, the U.S. is not like impervious to such things. Um, and I was talking with a friend about how it's a good idea to write down like, like lines that if crossed would trigger some sort of action from you about like getting out of the country or something like that. And I know this is something that you're an expert on in terms of like, you know, assessing situations and, and making these sort of contingency plans. What are some of your top tips for creating contingency plans for scary things that might happen both in personal life and um, in business? Okay. So I think the, the most impactful part that when I speak to entrepreneurs about creating contingency plans that they don't know about is cutting, is setting really clear cut triggers. So mm -hmm. what's a trigger? We all know that analogy that if you put a lobster into a pot of water and you set it to boil, it'll just stay in there until it dies. However, if you would have put it into the boiling pot of water, it would have tried to jump out. Now that's what really happens in life to us as well. Now, a lot of times let's say in our business, for example, there's an employee, there's a situation, and it starts going south, but we don't deal with it. 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 And then eventually just blows up because we didn't set ahead of time, a very clear cut trigger that once it gets to level X, it's done regardless of our emotional state, regardless of if we want to put it off because like, let's say in the States, you're comfortable where you are, or this is going on or that's going on, whatever your emotional things may be. You're saying, no, no, no. I said ahead of time that once this gets to this level, I am done. Whether it's in business, whether it's in your life, whatever it may be. Because the thing is, we fear change. We fear having to put something into action. So once, and let's put it this way, on top of that, once you're already in a place that you should take action, you're probably in a place where you're, comp where you're emotionally compromised. So you're not gonna make good decisions. Mm. But if ahead of time you've made a decision that when things get to this level, this is the action I should take, when you made that in a calm place where you were thinking logically, then you'll make the correct decision and in a timely manner when things do hit the fan. And I'm guessing that 
it's really important to have very clear steps and directions of what you do when that line is crossed. Because like you said, you're probably going to be in a compromised like place and it maybe not be thinking clearly. So you want to be really specific about what you do, where you go, that's, that sort of thing. Yeah. And to even take it a step further, this is what I talk about. It's building these kind of if then because mental modules. So if this happens, then I'll do this. Well, why will I do this? Because of this important reason, this why. Otherwise, you might be able to try to argue with yourself and justify yourself. Yeah, I should do this, but you know what? Forget about it. I want to do that instead. It's more comfortable. But if you have a very clear, if I hit this fork in the road, this very challenging situation, then I will perform this action because I know that this is how I really want to win my life. And when I was thinking logically ahead of time, this was the correct decision that I made. Mm. So when you combine all three of those, it works really well. You know, do you have any like, like personal, like lines like that, that are like, I mean, obviously traveling all over the place and like, like, do you have any plans like that? Any of these are conting contingency plans laid out for you? Um, as far as safety, honestly, no, I just don't get myself into those kind of situations. Um, <laughs> for example, like in the States, I didn't want to go there right now when COVID hit, I could have gone to Austin and same would have happened, but it just didn't seem like the right decision. I have that a lot with personal relationships. I have a very, I'm not willing to compromise in who I hang out with just because it's the right thing to do, just because it's not disruptive or whatever it may be. If somebody conducts themselves on a certain level, then I just don't hang out with them because that's not where I'm trying to live my life. It's not how I'm trying to live my life. I don't enjoy it. And I get a lot of, a lot of people don't like that, but I'm very comfortable with it. And when I look back at it in hindsight, I'm usually proud of those decisions. I'm happy with them. I'm content. Gotcha. Well, Itamar, thank you so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun to talk with you. Uh, we've been trying to get this uh, for a while, yeah. you know. Uh, so I seriously appreciate it. Thank you so much. And before we jump off, um, please let people know where can they find out more about you? Where can they find you on social? And also if they're interested in your services, who are your services for, first of all? Like, you know, what are the businesses that, you're, that you like, like working with? Um, and how can those people get in touch with you? So everybody can find me at MaraniConsulting.com. And the people I work with kind of varies. It's either entrepreneurs looking to scale their business or entrepreneurs hoping to, again, understand their where and why they're trying to get to in life, which has been a very interesting thing. And on social, the same thing. You can find me at Marani Consulting. You can also just send me a friend request on Facebook, Nita Marani. That also works. And I always encourage people, if, if you want to get in touch, do so. Send a message. Say hi see what you're doing. And aside from that, with everything being shut down, I'm not doing any public speaking right now. So I am doing a lot of uh, digital conferences, summits and podcasts. So if people want to reach out, please feel free to do that as well. Awesome, brother. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Stay safe and uh, all the best. Guys.